Good morning. How are we doing? Good start to the day with a baptism, right? Praise God. Hmm, my screen is somehow not happy. If you're visiting, we're glad to have you here with us. Welcome to the jungle, right? All the wild things happening here, the wild year we're living in. We are continuing a series we've been doing for a while now. We kind of drop it and pick it up again, the book of Acts. And uh, we are in the 20th chapter, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there. So do we have Charlie with us? Charlie's joined us online, his family, so glad to have, have them here virtually. We have any cars out in the parking lot? Honk if you're there. Oh, goodness, okay. A few tough souls out there in the parking lot, praise God. So they have a nice building side to look at. It's not as interesting as... I don't know, maybe a building is as interesting as looking at a preacher. I don't know. So I'll leave that to you guys to decide. So a recap from last week. We began with this poor young man named Eutychus, who Paul, as he preached on and on, he preaches this poor young man to death. And Eutychus fell from the third story window when he fought, fell into a, a deep sleep. So we're all familiar with things that are monotonous. We're familiar with things that are boring. We're familiar with long-winded speakers. This is a part of our human experience. But there's also things that boredom can teach us that I invited us to consider. In an age where there's fierce competition for our attention, uh, to entertain us, to captivate us with the sensational uh, there's no doubt um, that there are preachers and teachers who just need to do a better job communicating. We just need to be better communicators. Um, and we need to up our game with that. Uh, but in the end, God doesn't want to be your entertainer. Does that make sense? His purpose is not to distract you from the issues of your life. To just put a little salve on, oh, give me a quick laugh, give me a quick emotional boost. God is interested, rather, not to be our entertainer, but to be our Savior. Not to distract us from the issues of our life, but to give us a real life that is worth living. A life of meaning and purpose. So what does our boredom communicate? I think sometimes it communicates uh, that we have to admit we've been filling our minds with multimedia junk food. And sometimes we just need to turn off the dumb devices and pay attention to the people around us. Or go find people uh, that we can be in community with, even with the limitations of what's throwing us, um, what's throwing our community gatherings into chaos this year. There's still ways we can figure out how to do this. So I would say don't be satisfied with trivia or the trivial things in life. Uh, invest in thoughtful things, in meaningful knowledge. Uh, so I asked us a question, what do we think deeply about? Uh, 
What do you think deeply about? Don't just dismiss it. Oh, I'm not, that's not my thing. I'm not a smart person. I'm not. God wants you to use what you've been given. God wants you to develop what you've been given. What do you think deeply about? What do you chew on? How do you set your mind on things above? See, our boredom, it reveals something of the condition of our heart. It shows a disconnect sometimes between our church life and our real life. If your church life is disconnected from your real life, your church life will feel boring. But you want to know what makes church really interesting? If you take the things here and try to live it out in your 9 to 5, in your household, with kids or parents who are driving you crazy, a sister who's driving you crazy, dad who's just not listening right, if you learn how to live it out in the presence of your neighbors, the Christian life is anything but boring. It's one dramatic thing to another. It's one adventure to the next. What do you think deeply about? Boredom, it can reveal the distraction that we have in our lives. You know, like I, I think about my iPhone, the convenience of it, how I've learned how to do things I never would have... There are people who think about the psychology of these things. How do we flash the lights in such a way? How do we get the likes and the icons up there in such a way that psychologically it has an impact that I begin to depend on it? I begin, and without thinking then, we have these things in front of us. Is this not true? We've not been living in a bubble. We all have things that we... It started with the TV back whenever that came out, and it's only gone up from there. Boredom reveals our distraction. Boredom reveals sometimes our own apathy. Boredom can reveal a lack of commitment. Now, I'm, I'm not saying sometimes things are just boring. Sometimes they are just boring. And uh, as, as this sermon goes on, I understand it degrades and it gets more and more boring as I talk on and on. So there's a fine line of, uh, I don't know, economy of scale with our words that we need to be thinking about. Boredom reveals to us just how much we have been saturated with a consumer mentality. What is this church doing for me? What is it giving to me? What am I getting out of this? As, as ugly as it is to say that, we bring that saturation of the world with us into this building or out into that field or into your car if you're in a car or at home online. We are saturated with the consumer mentality. And we need to just admit that so that we can set it aside and think, well, how am I expected by my Lord Jesus Christ to transcend this all-about-me kind of thinking? Remember I said Jesus Christ is a threat to business as usual. And he begins with this work in our own heart. And if you pay attention to things like, why am I bored? Is it really Calvin's words or XYZ? Or is there something bigger going on? Is there a bigger issue at play here? So if we learn to pay attention to these things, these things in our own heart, the Lord can use that as a means for our own transformation. And we'll get into that more. So when I was a young man, I thought 
Christianity was boring. I did. I, uh, and as hard as it is to admit this, I think it was boring to me because I hadn't become a true disciple of Jesus. I hadn't connected the things that were being talked about in church to my own real life. Somehow that real life was separate. There was a split between sacred things and secular things. Just so you know, in God's eyes, everything is sacred. And when you begin to see all of your life as sacred, all of your, even the mundane things of life, is something that God is watching, that God is interested in, that God wants to help you do better, life is not boring. So there are always going to be Pauls who talk on and on. And there are always going to be Eutychuses who end up being bored to death. But what do you think deeply about? How does what we do here impact the vast majority of our time which is spent outside of here and the second thing I talked about last week was Luke doesn't tell us anything about what Paul shared he doesn't tell us the content of the message that's not important to the the story the narrative that Luke is telling instead he gives us a picture of a church in Ephesus uh, or this is Troas now a church that loves to be together so much so that they're willing, when Paul's able to come into town, to stay together until midnight. Let's light the extra lamps. Let's go into the upper room and let's do this. And then after this event, Paul just keeps on preaching and they go until daylight. Don't miss that this is a church that loves being together. You've heard me say so many times in so many different ways that our success of the church, whether or not the Eugene Church of Christ stands or falls, um, has nothing to do with forced fires, has nothing to do with coronavirus. It's even bigger than the people that come and go out of this place. But it has to do with our relationships. The success of what we do here has, it hinges on our relationships that we have with one another. Do we love to spend time together? So Luke then uh, gives us another picture as we go further on in Acts chapter 20 of another possibility of loving relationships in the church. And so now we get a little window of um, intimacy between the elders of the church at Ephesus and the Apostle Paul, between elders and this missionary who has invested in their lives, who's shared his very heart with them, We went on ahead to the ship and sailed from Asos where we, were to, where we were going to take Paul on board. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. So they begin making this journey out of Troas after they raise poor little Eutychus from the dead. 
they're moving on now. And uh, we'll get a sense of Paul's urgency with this trip. But for whatever reason, the first part of what he's doing here, Paul decided to take the more difficult footpath, walking on foot, more difficult than taking the ship around and starting the journey. So he walks on to the next bus stop, to the next port of call. When he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Miletus is significant. We'll come back to that. So there's lots of movements coming on. Let me just try to put up a map so we can see some of these movements. You see Troas there? So Paul walked on foot to Asos, Midlin, Chios, Samos, and then on eventually bypassing Ephesus to Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So we know that Paul was traveling with a group, a large group of fellow Gentile Christians. And uh, they were likely bringing the contribution Paul had collected from the Gentile churches. So then why the hurry to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost? Well, Paul, remember, he's got this two-and-a-half-plus-year history in Ephesus. That was the staging place for the mission of God. And then he goes different places in Greece and Macedonia in kind of this farewell tour of encouragement. And uh, as he goes to encourage, he comes back from Troas. He just, you know, you got a big group of people, and everybody has friends in Ephesus. And how long, once you let the cats loose, does it take to herd cats back together? You know, so... Uh, they decide it's just better if we go on because Paul had an agenda in mind and it's to get to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. And I, I just, I blew right past this, but I thought later on about the significance of what that means and what was going on here. What else do we know happened on the day of Pentecost from the book of Acts? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the generosity of God in the form of the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit which created the mission of God. The Gentile churches are recipients in a lot of ways of the generosity of God poured out in that Pentecost event. You see that? They were unknown to these Jewish early Christians. But what happened there that day in this new kind of partnership available in the Holy Spirit, it saved these people's lives. People that these Jewish early Christians, disciples, they had no idea or even a thought for that may be included in what's going on someday, the ripples of the mission of God. So now Paul is traveling with representatives of all of these Gentile churches. We looked at their names last week. 
And I think we hear in other places about this collection he had been in Romans and First or Second Corinthians, this collection that Paul had put together that was a priority for him. So he wants to be back there on the day of Pentecost again. You see the beauty of what's kind of happening there? So this gift that Paul is collecting for the churches, it's about more than just meeting the needs of poor Christians in Jerusalem. This is all about building the bonds of brotherhood, what is taking place there in this giving. Another way to think of it, the generosity of God in the gift of the Holy Spirit, it allows us, it allows them to have an intimate relationship with God. But the Spirit doesn't just connect us to God. The Spirit connects us to each other. We don't always recognize that. We don't just discover God in the Holy Spirit. We, we find each other. We find each other as fellow image bearers of God, sharing in and partaking in the same Holy Spirit. And so, when we discover each other in the Lord, it naturally expresses itself in acts of service and generosity, what Jonathan was talking about in his communion talk. So by giving these gifts to the Jerusalem Christians on the day of Pentecost with the, this, these Gentile Christians and their contribution, by bringing these gifts and surprising the, the church, the Jerusalem church isn't banking on this. They're not expecting this. It's just a beautiful act of love and celebration that everyone there would recognize in the end it's just adding to the beauty of all the generosity of God. It's all about the generosity of God. It began for the church in Pentecost. It has spread throughout the world. And that blessing is coming back again in a different form, in a different ways. You see the beauty of what Paul has his heart set on here. And then you get some idea of this sense of urgency. And that's why... He preaches all night at Troas. That's why he decides to sell past Ephesus. But he has a little bit of work to do before he moves on too far. And he calls the elders of the church to come and meet him. And from where he is in Miletus, it would take a day back to Ephesus and at least a day for them, the elders, to make it back there. So it's two, maybe four days Delay, which would still be less than if they stopped in Ephesus, to have these elders come. And these elders, they drop everything and they come for this chance to be together with Paul again. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Publicly and from house to house. So what Paul is doing here is he's appealing to this common history that he has with the Ephesian eldership. He's appealing to the example that he set for them, and he's encouraging these elders to follow in his footsteps. 
You see, the Apostle Paul, he is the real deal. He's the real deal. So my first question for us today is, who are the people who have been in your life who are the real deal? The people who have proven faithful through thick and thin, who've been there for you, who've discipled you in the Lord maybe, showed you something about what God is like, who have been the real deal for you in your life. And in this age of wearing masks, just how duplicit our hearts can be. Everybody wants you to think, and they want to pretend to be the real deal. But over time, their hearts are revealed. And yet there are a precious few who you know, and they're proven over the course of years they are the real deal. These elders from Ephesus, they know They know Paul is the real thing. Everyone wants to pretend to be the real thing, but their behaviors, it's just a mask for the real agenda, which is elsewhere that they have, whatever that agenda is. So several things I just want to point out about about this common history that that, uh, Paul appeals to with these elders. First is, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. You know how I was the whole time. Uh, There are some who in our lives, we just assume that what they're doing, but we really don't know how they've lived the whole time. We don't know with everyone how they've lived the whole time. We don't know what they do online. We don't know what they do in secret. We don't know what they are like when they think nobody's watching. Nobody sees me. Because a lot of times what we portray out in a group setting It's a mask, and it hides something. If you have filth or brokenness or secret sin in your life, eventually it's going to show. It leaves a mark, and it does things that you cannot fully hide and cover up. Over time, people are proven untrue and unfaithful from the secret sins they try to cover in their lives. Paul is able to say, you know how I lived the whole time. He spent so much time together that there's no doubt. There's no doubt about what his character is like. And then the second thing Paul says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. There are some, even among our leaders, I think we are in a land in want of leadership that shows humility, that has tears over the things of God and over the concerns that are close to the heart of God. Paul 
had humility in the way he served this church. Some people have made a show of humility or they've used false humility strategically. But if your humility is false and your heart is not invested in the words you profess, this too is going to show. This too cannot be hidden forever. I was severely tested. It's another catalyst for our hearts and our faith revealing some of these things about, about us. We've all known people who when things are good, when things are joyful and sunny, there's no problems. But when the going gets hard, when the joy is gone and the burden remains, there are a lot of people who've given up. Maybe some of us carry these scars of abandonment. And that comes to us in a lot of different ways. They've left us hanging. They haven't kept their word. There are some who, when they are severely tested, they've not remained true. Paul was severely tested. And you can see where his heart is in his life. And I think it is through the testing that he has that there's a refining process in, in Paul that has taught him humility and given him tears of compassion for the troubles of others. And then Paul finally says, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. That's another place where we fall, where people have not been what they seem. It's because they have said the easy words to us, but they have left the hard words that need to be spoken to us unspoken. I'm not saying all of those words need to be public, but what are, what are those words that are the hard words that need to come to us from house to house sometimes too? A leadership that is godly, like these elders from Ephesus, they have times that they get to speak the easy words of blessing, but they also have times because of the demands of love that they have to speak the hard words as well. And we know that there are some who have hesitated to say the hard words necessary. So we all know examples of people who, in one way or another, they've gotten tripped up. And uh, they have not proven to be the real deal. But we also have, especially in the fellowship of the church, oh my goodness, who despite temptations who despite hardships of many kinds they've remained true and their faith has been proven to be true not just over a short time but over the course of an entire lifetime their faith has proven true over many years this church is filled with people who are the real deal. This church is filled with people who are the real deal. What a joy it is to get to celebrate that. And what a treasure we have getting to learn from these people and spend time with them as they encourage us. You can be the real deal too. So 
So now Paul shares a couple qualities that are universally found among people who are the real deal. And he says it with just these few words, verse 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. You don't get to be a real deal without repentance and without faith. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, the pathway for you to become the real deal, it is always going to include repentance and faith. Repentance is when you get knocked down, you get back up. Repentance is when you get off course, you get back on track. Repentance is all about a course correction. And faith, what is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is a vision of the goodness of God that can carry through all the hardship that this world is going to throw at you. This world is going to throw hardship at you. Faith is a vision of the goodness of God that is so strong that you know whatever comes your way, I can trust my Lord and my God. He's going to take care of me. That's what faith is. Faith is trust. God has got this. And Paul goes on, and now compelled by the Spirit. See, this idea of this contribution of Pentecost, that's put there by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Prison and hardships are facing me. Paul, by the time, uh, this time in his life, he has such an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit that the Spirit would share things with Paul. The Spirit would give information to Paul. Information even on the hard things, the uncomfortable things. And Paul is so intimate and close with the Lord at this point that he doesn't run from the hard things. Self-preservation is not his primary modus operandi. Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So things are coming full circle now. Many, many years before the, uh, this, Paul said these words in Acts 20, there was the events of Acts chapter 9 with a disciple named Ananias who the Lord Jesus told to go heal the blindness of a guy named Saul who was a persecutor of the church. And Ananias said, Lord, I've, I've heard about this guy. This guy's got a reputation. He's the worst of the worst sort. And he's caused all kinds of harm. But then Jesus says to Ananias, Go. No argument here. You go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
And because of this intimacy with the Lord, the Holy Spirit is now showing Paul the suffering that's ahead of him. He's been through a lot of suffering already, and there's more to come. In Acts chapter 20, this promise that Jesus gives is fulfilled. But Paul, in his thinking, he's no longer consumed with self-preservation. His concern, rather, is faithfulness to the mission God has given me. Paul is the real deal. So in verse 25, he goes on. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So first point is notice the content of Paul's message, what he's preaching. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's preaching about the availability of the kingdom of God that we have in Jesus Christ. He's talking, his message is about not just its availability, but how do we step in and live from the power and the resources of the kingdom of God. Not just pie in the sky by and by, but here and now in our real lives. How do we enter into this life of the kingdom even now? But also notice that Paul, he's passing the baton to the Ephesian eldership. Paul has fulfilled the task the Lord has given him among these people. He's essentially saying, my part in this is over. And now this is your watch. And so Paul doesn't just give these elders a charge. He also encourages these shepherds. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. These few words communicate who gives these elders their authority. Holy Spirit put them where they are. And these overseers are the kind of overseers or shepherds who are supposed to be like shepherds among sheep. And then finally in these words, there's a reminder of the price that was paid for the flock. I.e., who it is who has ownership of the flock. It's the one who bought and paid for it. And you are my stewards. There's a lot communicated just in even these few words. And then Paul goes on to share a warning. He's been warned about things for him for the Holy Spirit, but he's also been warned about the trials these elders are going to have to face and deal with. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So part of the diligence of being a, 
uh, elder or a shepherd of the Lord's church is to protect us from false teaching, is to be watchful of um, the things that would throw us off course from our mission, the things that would end up being a harm and dangerous for our unity. Even sometimes when false teachers may arise from within the congregation, it sounds like that's what was going to likely happen in Ephesus. There are so many dangers to try to thwart and throw us off track, to try to destroy our churches, to break our bonds of fellowship, to just continually... And I think the attacks, they're subtle things a lot of times. And we don't realize how big those cumulative subtle things can become that would destroy the unity of their church. I think I'm better off on my own. The church isn't doing it for me. I hear that consumer mentality coming in again. The subtle ways we make it about us and we lose our focus on the mission of God. There's so many dangers to the church. There's so many of us who, even though we are trying to live this life in the Lord, there's still corruption and selfish motives that we have. When you're baptized into Christ, suddenly all pride does not just fly out the window. You learn in the power of the Spirit how to fight pride and selfishness. The need for your own comfort, the need for self-preservation. And you learn in the power of the Spirit how to live love like Jesus Christ modeled love in a spirit of self-sacrifice and giving. So many have lost the mission of God and instead they focused on trivialities. But Paul doesn't just warn these elders, he blesses them. He passes the torch and commits them to God. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. (coughs) He blesses them. He passes the torch to these men and he commits them to the Lord. And then after blessing them, Paul appeals to this example, this history that he has among them one more time. This time, he's talking about integrity. He's talking about being above reproach. uh, About having complete integrity with money matters or financial things. And then he also talks about the value of hard work. So that's more of what he's sharing. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 33 through 35. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. 
And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. Paul is the real deal. And these Ephesian elders know it. They know it. So remember back to the beginning of my sermon when I asked you the question, who are the people in your life who have been the real deal? The real deal for you. We've all had people in our lives who have been the, the real deal for us. Elders, ministers, friends, teachers, parents, maybe a spouse who's taught us and encouraged us. You see, most of the time, the glory of God inside of each of us, it's hidden. We don't, we don't see it easily in each other. But for these special ones who have become the real deal for us, we see something in their life that sparkles like Jesus Christ. We see something of the beauty of Jesus in their faithfulness, in the way that they live. There's something about their soul that shines like Jesus. And when these shiny souls are around us, we feel safer. We feel bolder. We feel like we can handle the crazy that this world throws at us. But just like Paul is saying goodbye to these Ephesian elders, likewise, many of us have wept as we've had to say goodbye to the shiny souls in our lives. These beautiful people who've taught us things about the Lord. The kisses and tears of these elders they're a testimony to the impact that Paul had had on their lives what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again then they accompanied him to the ship and after we had torn ourselves away from them we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. We thank the Lord for all of the people that he's put in our lives who are the real deal. So I was thinking about that today. I've had so many, so many people who have been the real deal in my life. Um, when I was a young college student, when I finally figured out what I wanted to do with my life, I floundered my early years in college and stuff because it didn't mean anything to me. But then I found out I want to serve the Lord my whole life as a minister of his. And I would, didn't know what that would mean or what that would look like or where that would go in the future. But uh, I was down in Austin, Texas, going to this little Bible chair. But on the weekends, on the weekends I would drive out to a little house that my grandparents, uh, my mom's parents had rented um, on a lake, a reservoir out there. And so I would drive my uh, 69 Mercury Montego. That thing sucked a lot of gas, even for gas prices back then. I'd drive that Mercury Montego out there and I'd get there Friday night after classes and I'd spend the night and I would just spend the weekend with them. I'd love to do this. I thought this would go on forever. 
I just had no thought about anything except how much fun I was having in the moment. And they rejoiced having me there. Uncle Dale would make depression pancakes for me, a special recipe. There's just a few simple ingredients. And they had introduced me to salted pork and other things I had never eaten. And we'd go out and we would fish for these white bass out on the fishing boat. And I'd tell them about my classes. I'd tell them about this girl I liked back up in Idaho. I would, we would just talk about all manner of things. And sometimes the language, it was maybe not grandmother approved, but we talked about just the stuff of life and we had a great time doing it. And they would take me out and they were, I remember the joy they had when, they t- t- when I was a skinny young guy with my metabolism that was through the roof. They took me to an all-you-can-eat prime rib buffet. And they laughed about that for years. The, um, I'm, I'm surviving on ramen packets throughout the week. And I get a chance at prime rib. And I just ate like amounts that you could tell the people who were serving it were just kind of like, this kid is back here again for more. So Grandpa always was proud of the amount that I could pack away and get, my, get his money's worth out of that meal. And uh, I'd sleep in the bed. And Saturday mornings, before I would wake up, it's my day to sleep in. Grandpa would take the keys in my car and he'd go fill it with gas. As a young person, I didn't understand what all that meant. I just thought, my grandpa's generous, he just wants to do these things. But then I realized. He just wants to be together with me and he wants me to come back. He was the real deal, one of my real deals in my life. And I thought he'd be there forever. And I had to say goodbye to him. The Lord has put people in our lives who are the real deal. But part of the process of discipleship is that the strength and investment that these special people have poured into us, it's our task to take that and invest in others. We're all about becoming the real deal. And we honor the faith of our fathers who's gone before us. And we do the work of the Lord's church here now among us. And that passes on to future generations that are going to come behind us. Consistent faithfulness and a love for the Lord that will carry us through an entire life. And the reality of the kingdom of God is that our beloved saints are real deals who have gone on before us. They are part of the great great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on. Paul, he is able to tear himself away from his brother elders 
who love him, even though that they're going to be, he, even though he knows they're going to be attacked and they're going to face a lot of trials. Paul is able to do this because he understands that it's not him that they need. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is the one that they need. And just like we feel a black hole and vacuum from the loss of our beloveds who are the real deal to us when we are no longer able to be with them. But it is the Spirit of the Lord who we need. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ that we need. It is learning how to seek Him and depend on Him. See, Paul isn't trying to create dependence on Him. Like a good parent, he's trying to help them wake up to the reality that the Holy Spirit is the help that they need. And so even though he knows that these elders are going to have to navigate tough stuff and that there are going to be attacks that come, he's able to walk away and leave them, tear himself away from them because he loves them too. Because he knows the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God that is going to be with them even when the wolves come and attack the flock. See, Paul, he's a steward. He's a nursemaid. But always, in the Christian life and the Christian faith, we have to we have to have people who are dependable among us that we learn to follow their example. We need that. But in the end, what we are called to do is transfer our hearts and our allegiance in our dependence onto the Lord our God and do that through our repentance and our faith. Faith is trust and a vision of the goodness of God. That's the sermon. It's a sweet, sweet image of the love between this missionary Paul and the Ephesian eldership that they love each other so much that they don't want to be parted. So, I don't know where you are in this life or where you are in that process of discipleship. But our task is to become the real deal for the Lord first, but for the good and blessing of each other as well and those who are going to come in, uh, come along after us. So if we can help you with prayer, if we can help you in any part of this whole wonderful process that he gives us of learning to step into the power and the resources of the kingdom of God in the strength of the Holy Spirit, that is what we are about here in this place. That is the mission of this church. You let us know how we can help you. Putting on the Lord in baptism like Bethany did today or Ella a couple weeks ago, down to just the concerns and weights on your heart that we can pray over. We want to be a community that is there for each other. So Ron, come on up. And uh, he's going to lead us in a song. Let us become, brothers and sisters, the real deal, the real deal for each other.